life with One Nation's being the only consistent political party for the last 20 years. They're not talking about you. Alright, well let me tell you, One Nation is talking about you. It's like the media's run away from One Nation. They're too scared to ask us any questions, mainly because we're straight talkers and we've got the answers. This is like a call to arms. You guys need to start making the real decisions and who you're going to vote for. Hey everyone, we have uh, Lyle Swim, our first international guest, which is very exciting, all the way from the United States of America. Welcome, Lyle. Yeah, How are you? Thanks. You want to Great. tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Alice Network, and we are a global organization, I mean, for lack of a better word, an association. Uh, of think tanks and advocacy groups, community groups, um, NGOs all over the world. So all working to advance and what, freedom and human flourishing. What's attracted you to come to the Freedman Conference? So uh, Alice has been involved for a long time. You probably heard some of the initial engagement. But uh, Tom Palmer, who's my colleague who's here, uh, in a conversation with Tim, uh, well, back in 2013 maybe, brought up, hey, you ought to find a way to get some folks in the same room, and out of that grew the Freedman Conference. So this is my third year. Typically, given what we do, we'll try to come in a few days in advance and, and get our partners that are here in Australia together. And uh, we did on actually a summit before where we were talking about kind of some of the strategic issues of where does the freedom movement go and yeah. where can we be more successful and where are there gaps, right, where there may be strategic human resource gaps yeah. or... Uh, capabilities that we're not fulfilling, and, and some of those came up, and then game planning, how do we go about building those, adding those, is there a new organization that needs to come about, and how do we do that? So, um, Does the Atlas Group, in, like, do you have members where like people they could help with um, minor parties or something like that, where they could help So, uh, Yes and no. Right. So let me you know qualify that so I don't get in trouble with the IRS. Um, <laughs> none of our partners are direct affiliates of a party. Right. Right. So they're from a from a legal standpoint. You know we don't endorse candidates. We don't endorse parties. And if a partner goes that direction, then they are they lose their partner status. Okay. Now the the yes part of that is that you know most of our groups are working with whoever will come to the table to provide solutions. Um, those groups or parties tend to be more center-right, but not always. Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll provide legislation, research, advocacy, whatever they can do to move policy forward. So we tend to say our groups are um, party agnostic. We're more about policy and principle than yeah. we are about party. But yeah. there is a recognition that to get something into law, you need to work with the parties, you need to work with who's in power, the regulators, the elected officials, and so oftentimes they will. They'll, they'll work hand-in-hand hand with them, not so much to endorse, but to enable um, and to provide good data, research, policy recommendations to help them. When you bring up the freedom movement, obviously we know what that looks yeah. like here in Australia. <laughs> what does it look like in America, and mm -hmm. what are the differences that, between the two countries? If any. Yeah, well, clearly a difference is just the size, right? I mean, population-wise, yeah. and then has bred a difference. So in the U.S., we probably have around 180 groups that are partners of Atlas Network. Wow. Um, and uh, so, again, just the sheer size. And, and the way the structure is, um, we have groups that are focused nationally, but then we also have, in almost every state, I think there's actually at least one group that's just focused on policy in that particular state. So 
that federalism dynamic, I know there are some differences between the states here in, in New Zealand and the federal. Um, I think one of the major differences, I think states in Australia can't levy taxes, if I'm not correct. They're, not like, per, like personal income taxes. Yeah, they're limited in terms of their, their taxes. There's certainly many, a lot of state taxes, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's not yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. so in, you know, in my state in Virginia, I do have, in addition to sales tax and property tax, I do actually have, I think it's like a five and a half, six percent personal income tax okay. that I pay. So their, their taxing ability is a bit different. Now, Texas and Florida don't have any state income tax, right? And they try to sell people, come here because mm. you're not going to pay state income tax. Wow. Yeah. So it does allow for a level of com- tax competitiveness um, and competition between states, mm-hmm. which our groups have tried to effectively use to reduce taxes. Like Florida is an example um, of that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, and Texas, um, I think Nevada has no state income tax. Yep. Um, so wait a second. Sorry. So, so, wait a second. So just let me say this clear. One second. Yeah. So you can work and you pay about a 10% tax all up out of what you earn, um, the property tax and that other tax that you mentioned, six something percent. So there's, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, multiple. There's sales taxes, right, which are transaction. That, so they're on. That's like a GST tax. Is that, is that that when you? I've been to America, I think twice a long time yeah. ago. So if you buy something for five dollars, and then there'll be a tax on top of that, mm. not on the ticket price. You, yeah. That's at the register. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's your tax that you one tax that you pay, and then you pay a property tax. Yep. If you if you own, if you own a car, uh, if you own um, a house, yes, typically in you're paying an annual tax on that particular asset. Okay, and is that is that based by income? No, it's based on the value of the asset. Okay. So if I own a, you know, if the property tax is 1% on an annualized basis, if I own a $100,000 home, I'm paying $1,000. If I own a million-dollar home, I'm paying $10,000 a year in, okay. in property taxes. Okay. And you said it applies to vehicles as well. Yes. So is there a limit on that? It's like, is, does it have to be... So typically, because the value of the asset goes down, most states have it structured that as the value goes down, the the amount of tax you pay on on a yearly basis. Like a depreciation. Same, same thing on a home, right? And that's one of the problems, you know, if you do have a market where the, the mm. if it goes up, mm. you can have property tax go up really quickly and steeply and, and it really hits fixed income people right in some of these metropolitan mm. areas that over the last 25 30 years you've had these retirees or people who've moved on to fixed incomes the the real estate appreciation in some of these markets is as high as 70 80 percent and so that cost of living is has been massive so so obviously when you have a home so basically you're it, we talk about it mm. we're renting our property from the government yeah you know there, there's a level of almost that yeah. that if you don't pay it you don't know they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll come in and take your property we, we would understand that like with uh, having a home loan with a variable interest rate and if the interest rates go up suddenly you have to pay more yeah but essentially what you're saying if you even if you own your home and the in, you know, the, the price of that home increases, the capital of that home increases, you're paying more tax. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they're trying to be, introduce that um, tax as well for us, isn't it? Where they, land, the government, tax. land tax, yeah. Yeah. which is an ongoing tax instead of paying your stamp duty. Yeah. So if you had to pay a, a land tax um, in, in Australia, you pay um, a stamp duty, which might be, say, let's say $30,000. Mm-hmm. It's a one off payment. You borrow against the property value, like in a loan. Yeah. And after 30 years, you pay it off and then you own your home. But now what they're trying to say is that um, you don't have to pay your stamp duty to make the price cheaper for first home buyers and lower income or median income people to buy a house um, because we've had a 30% growth through COVID in some areas even more. 
Um, yeah, but then what happens is, um, from my understanding of it, you're locked into that land tax forever. And if you sell that property, then the people who buy that property are locked into inherit. that, uh, inherit that regime mm -hmm. as well. So in essence, you never really own your Seems property forever, mm -hmm. like ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah. So and it, it does, to your point, it does, under the argument, does make it cheaper on, on the upfront rate, but then it's kind of like this government annuity. Right? Forever. So, so they get it and, and then, you know, it's... Um, they're aggressive when it goes up. They're much less aggressive to redo it if, if there's a decline in the market, right, and the value of your home goes down 10%. Um, so it becomes a bit of a, a challenge there. So some states have instituted things where they've locked, um, you know, where they don't raise the income tax or the property tax. That also creates some issues, too, because then people don't want to sell and get into a new one because as soon as they sell, then... Because the property tax goes up and they have to, um, so yeah, it, it is a bit problematic. Right? You just spoke in the conference on the future of freedom yep. and you brought up education. Do you want to, uh, what, what's your view on, you know, the education system? Yeah, so uh, it's, if I, I could say one of the benefits, at least in the U.S. that we saw, is education, I'd say both K through, you know, primary, secondary, and you say tertiary, or, you know, yeah. you know pre-K up through 12th grade and then college in the U.S., I think has been ripe for innovation. Like, if you look at almost any other service that's provided in the U.S., there has been massive innovation, change, development. You know, even in healthcare, you know, um, which has a lot of government tentacles in it, but there's still been a lot of massive yeah. innovation. Yep. We're using the same education model. It's the Prussian education model mm. that was instituted back in the 1850s and was really geared toward creating factory a, a factory working class. Yep. Um, so it was basically the, this idea under the Industrial Revolution that I can treat humans like manufacturing widgets. Mm. If I just manipulate the experience that I'll get the same output and I'll create a factory... Mm. of factory workers, right? Mm -hmm. I've got this manufacturing line of students. I run them through, and on the other side, I get them to where I need them to be. Mm -hmm. So it was never really geared around, um, you know, it was really geared toward, um, you know, if you talk about a mean, right, the median or mean student. So it, it's terrible at addressing, you know, if you think about a curve, it's terrible at addressing either end. Yeah. You know, really exceptional students and, and the really struggling students, yeah. or the students that don't necessarily fit in the model, like my son, who I mentioned—you probably heard you heard this—but yeah. my son's dyslexic, mm -hmm. and and on the scale of you know mild to severe, he's he's in the middle, uh, but he really struggles to read, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, if, if I look at the current education model, it's really built around your reading capacity yeah. and your smartness level is often determined by your ability to read. Well, if I'm dyslexic, I mean, he hated school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and again, labeled himself as stupid as, as a third grader. You and know, so by, by eight years was, old, he was already taking himself out of the system. Yeah. I don't fit. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just was fighting the rest of the way through just to get through. Mm -hmm. Easy rose-colored glasses. Have at it. 
yeah. pretty much. Like because I, I know when this, they give you the tinted glasses because yeah. they reckon the black on white jumbles yeah. the words more. Okay. Yeah. But if you filter it with the colour, it tends to put the words. Uh, your brain will reorganise the letters properly to read yeah. better. Yeah. So I think yeah, there are some tools. Some of them fix it. Some of them don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So he's but but in terms of a just a smart in terms of like spatial intelligence he has incredible spatial intelligence so kind of the ability to see patterns and you know dynamics my wife said you know he can organize something better than anybody in the house again because he can just see how it all fits together mm. and then put things together like he's an amazing tetris player right? <laughs> you know? so which is a very spatial game yeah. right how uh, everything yeah. fits together yeah, yeah, that yeah. his intelligence but that kind of intelligence and, and development of curriculum and, and education system, because that's not the Prussian model, it didn't know what to do with that. And, you know, even in that model, if you think about it, that's, and we see it even today in terms of a lot of the advocates for the public school system, they themselves do not put their children in that system. Mm-hmm. And in the Prussian model, again, the educated wealthy class did not send their kids. So you you embed this structural inequality Mm -hmm. again it is one of the ironic things when we talk about the equity conversation one of the greatest things if they really were serious about creating equity would be to abolish public education as it is and tie the funding to the child so that child was not stuck in a model and a system Mm -hmm. that is structurally geared to only to keep them in the mean and not create any sort of exceptionalism or to address the challenges at the bottom. I'd say it's anyway. very similar here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One size fits all kind of thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which governments, that's because of the scale they're working at, that's that's what they're good at. Yeah. And I was going to say, um, it's funny because that's where we've kind of lost the innovators because intelligence, so dyslexic people are quite creative. Yes. You have a look high, at, high number of entrepreneurs that's right. are dyslexic. I think, mm-hmm. I believe Elon Musk. Yes. is dyslexic. Yes. I believe Ozzy Osbourne is dyslexic. Yep. So you've got somebody who's really great with numbers and can run businesses and he's the richest person in the world. And then you have, you know, a megastar rock star who can, you know, write songs and, and he's... Um, among oh, other things. Well, among <laughs> I mean, like Ozzy Osbourne is probably... The full, the, full rock star experience. So. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing, but yeah. it's, this is the first name that comes to my head that I know who's dyslexic. And um, the prob- and the thing is, like, um, through an indoctrination system that we have, you know, it doesn't create any um, outstanding people. Whereas if you have a look at even Albert Einstein, I think he only did six years of school his whole life, yet he, he equals MT squared. Yeah. I mean, you know, so they brought out this... So he could barely read and write, but took an interest in, like, you know, physics and mathematics and all this, and nuclear and all this kind of stuff. And then he became exceptional at it. Yeah. So what do we, it's like addressing what do we rate intelligence as? Yeah. So is intelligence that you can read and write at level three or level six or level 15? Or is it that, well, you, you actually can't read very well. You've got the basics and you can fill out an application and understand what's going on. But your specialty is art. And then all of a sudden you've got a Vincent van Gogh on your hand if you focus them that way. Mm-hmm. And then or you might have um, a nuclear physicist. You know who might create cold fusion. Yeah. So, the, um, it's an amazing thing that um, that you're right that the current system doesn't um, incorporate. And I've noticed through the children, my kids who go to school, my kids go to a Catholic school mm. because um, I just believe that's it's, it's very close to um, like my values. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps them out of this. 
It's still a little bit work, not as much. but it's not as much. It's a bit. It's a longer, slower process, and then we hope we can counteract a lot of that workness. Um, but even they find it hard to to, to help the slower, the, the the less able students. Not too bad with the bit more exceptional students, but the they get the the slower ones kind of get um, thrown into a class after the main class. They get a little bit of um, special help, remediation, not from remediation, yeah. but not from teachers. So from assistants who will read them a book or talk them through. So you might get their assistant teachers or something like that. And then they, um, I'm lucky my do- I'm lucky that my daughter doesn't have to do those. Um, but she talks about it. And what happens is the kids know the difference between them. Oh, these, they're the, we, I don't like to, I don't like to sit next to them because they're the ones that have to go to the other class. Whereas maybe there should be a separate class for those guys and give them more focused on the basics, as such. Yeah, it's there's a. Um so it used to be in the U.S., you'd have, uh, and I think this really helped with that, that stigma, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there is a real stigma that's placed on the learning disabled, you know, right from the get-go, um, in a time when they're probably most vulnerable to feeling that social pressure, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's a really, if you think about it, it's a really perverse way to, to, to deal with those, again, from an equity standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to buy into that argument it's it's super perverse but um yeah it's the in the u.s as i was saying that it used to be they called it the one one room schoolhouse model right so you had these small community schools and kids aged eight to 15 were all in the same room and the older ones or the ones more advanced would help you know depending on the time of day you know, the 8-year-old the was doing better than the 12-year-old, and then another time of the day, the 12-year-old was doing better. Than, and, and there was a lot more fluidity. And it's, it's really the philosophy behind what they call mon, the Montessori approach, right? Yeah. It's really learning as you go, uh, or kind of a paste based yes. on where you are. And mm-hmm. so it gets back a little bit into the measurement that I said, the application, that rather than these high stakes at the end of the year where you've gotten through a certain curriculum, that the Montessori approach, um, there is kind of a, a demonstration of mastery hmm. before you move on to the next segment of learning. Yeah. Mm. And so you don't move on. And that's so I can fix if there's a learning gap or there's something that's been missed, I can go and I can fix that. Hmm. And then the student gets to move on. And if they get through three years of math in one year, great. Mm-hmm. Nothing holds them back from right. that. Um, and so I was in that kind of a school environment. We had a, um, I went to a private school for, for a few years and, you know, there was a kid in there and he was like, he was probably in fourth grade and he was doing like algebra. He was brilliant. His, his English stuff like was like at the first grade level. Like, I mean, it was terrible, but a brilliant math mind. Right. And, but that room and there were three grades, we had third through like fifth grade. So three grades, so he could kind of flex up in math and then get more appropriate attention when we were dealing with some of these others. Well, I know when you talk about the, you know, the test at the end of the year and there's so much pressure on that test, my biggest problem was memory. So if it was mathematics, yeah. when I was in the class learning about algebra, I would get it and I'd be able to do it, but when it would come to the test, I'd be like, oh, what's that formula again? I can't yeah. remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you talk about the Prussian system. What's uh, what's alternative systems? You just mentioned some. The Montessori. Yeah. yeah. So there, I don't know if there's some other approaches, but uh, or what the specific names are. But one of them I also mentioned. There, there are. There's a growing set of schools. I think one of them is called the Walden School. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they're really built around this concept of of kind of exploration and play early on. Where are the child's interests? And then based on that curiosity and interest, uh, and this requires a lot more from teachers. Like, again, we don't met, like the teacher has to be much more nimble than mm. the normal public school teacher that's just a subject matter only expert. Mm-hmm. Or in elementary school, they're just kind of, I mean, glorified babysitters. Do you think that's the biggest problem? It's a teacher that's... I think, think, yeah, one of the biggest problems that we have are, at least in the U.S., are these schools of education Hmm. and how they are creating teachers and the teacher credentialing process. Hmm. And they're building teachers for the Prussian model. Hmm. So when, when COVID hit and they had to adapt and be nimble and figure out new ways to engage students... They were just simply ill-equipped. Not that they weren't smart enough that they couldn't have figured it out, Mm. but they were simply ill-equipped to navigate in this environment that didn't fit within a a pre-context. So the Waldorf School and some of these others, again, it's really based on the curiosity. The child then comes and says, I'm, you know, I want to build, I want to build a chair. Yeah. In order to build a chair, what do I have to learn? Mm. Yeah. I have to learn some math. Yeah. I have to learn geometry. What's a right angle? And if yeah. I don't want the right angle, you know, what will support the chair? And, you know, this isn't, you know, what what will be the most comfortable chair? And how do I want to do that? And so they'll take the curiosity and then wrap curriculum around the, the curiosity. And so the student wants to learn it because yeah. they want to go and do the project. And mm. how much more interested are you, just as a normal person, when you have an interest in a topic, you will yeah. learn it? It would, it don't, you don't even, it's not even learning it. It, it doesn't it, feel like school. It, no. Right. So yeah, you it read is. it, you'll absorb it, you remember it, and everything just works well. I just want to get back to one thing as well yep. with about the teachers. Okay? So the teachers, uh, Mark Latham, the New South Wales leader for One Nation, he um, did a, a speech, I think, with Parliament House, and he was saying that we have a problem with our teachers at the moment is that they will be a science teacher teaching science who never actually specialised in science or mathematics teachers who's never actually specialised in mathematics. So you're having them uh, teachers who are only a couple of pages ahead in the textbook of the student. So without uh, with doing the best they can, that's the way they've yeah. been taught, and it's not on. I, I don't. I agree that it's not. It's not on them. It's the system. So if they're educators, like so, you're talking about being nimble and being able to adjust. So um, just like you were saying about a child building a chair, um, you would need a teacher that would have artistic skills, you would need a teacher with mathematics skills, with construction skills, with with even able to how to use tools and all those kind of things. It's, to, to build a chair is much more than just going, here's a plan, have a go. You have to be able to interpret it. And if the teacher can't do that, it's very hard for them to teach the student. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is one of the... I mean, it's easy to talk about some of these reforms, but it's even... There, there are so many systems that are built around that reinforce the current model mm. that it is hard to change, right? So what, what's the interim solution? I think that's actually one of the challenges, I would say, for the freedom movement is how do I take the here and now and I have the ideal and what's the progression that gets me from where I am here and now to the ideal? So this is an example where we didn't really think through this well and I was on the losing end of this so I, I mentioned briefly so in Utah I worked for a think tank and we were trying to get vouchers passed and we were able actually through the legislature to pass a universal voucher now it was um, 
indexed to income levels. So if you were making over a certain amount, you got like 1000 a year. But if you were below the poverty line, you got like a $6,000 voucher, right? Wow. So it really accounted for the income disparities because we knew there would be those like, well, you're just trying to help the rich get private dedication yeah. and they're going to mm. pay for it anyway. So yeah. like, well, no, actually, we'll, so it really helped eliminate that. Mm. Not that the teachers unions and the others still tried to pitch it as the rich person's mm. education yeah. bill. Yeah. Um, so we got it passed through the legislature and they picked Utah where I live because, well, it's the most Republican state. Mm. I mean, it was like the Republican governor won with like 75% wow. of the mm. vote, right? I mean, it was massively Republican. So Republicans like school choice. Um, and so it passed through the legislature, but then there's a process in Utah called referendums. Mm -hmm. And referendum allows the people to say, I don't like that law and I want to overturn mm -hmm. that law. Yeah, okay. And so, so the, yeah, the teachers, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and there's, you know, for me, I think it's a it's a good outlet. It's a good check. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a high bar for that. Like it shouldn't just be. I don't. I don't necessarily want the public legislating on a regular basis. No, I, I do believe more Republican government that mm -hmm. way. Small R Republican. Mm -hmm. um, so, but there was a threshold. I think in Utah. I think it's like ten percent of the electorate in each county. So it has to be representative. You can't just go to one place and get a bunch of signatures of the last gubernatorial election. So I think it was something around 100,000 signatures that they had to gather, and you have about three weeks to do it. All so right. it's a meaningful task. Yep. It's mm -hmm. doable, mm -hmm. but you have to be energized, and you have to make a pretty compelling, clear case to okay. do it. Well, the teachers or unions are very well organized, yeah. right? They came up, and they I think they ended up getting almost 200,000 signatures. Wow. And, and I knew at that point we were cooked. We yeah. were, we were going to lose at the ballot box. Mm. And we did. We lost something like 65 to 45. So almost the same majority that voted Republican for the governor, we had a similar kind of landslide defeat. Mm -hmm. And I think it really got to this fact that the universal voucher was created too much, too much disruption from what was the current state of affairs. So in Utah, at that time, only 3% of students were in a non-government school. So mm -hmm. that 3% was homeschool and private school. Mm -hmm. So you were introducing a bill that would shake the landscape for 97% mm -hmm. of students. Wow. Just from a practical standpoint, where are they going to go? Mm. Right? There's no infrastructure. There's no Montessori schools that could make up for whatever those students wanted to do. You know, there weren't enough teachers trained in the correct way. There weren't enough. And so... It was it was just far too disruptive, um, and so and, and in a lot of these small towns, another one ignored in a lot of these small towns. Guess who's the biggest employer, and what's the center of the community? State like school. It's the state based yeah. school. Yeah, mm. right. And those teachers have credibility. They have influence. They have. So we ignored. Speaking of the diffusion curve that I introduced, we ignored all sorts of lessons from innovation diffusion, which you know is an area that. Um, you know, as I go back and I did kind of the post-mortem assessment after I did my dissertation, like, failed here, ignored here, ignored here, <laughs> ignored here, we should have expected to lose. Mm. Um, now, I think now in Utah, so now in Utah, if you look at um, charter schools, which are still government schools, but it allows them to be like a, have a focus on drama. Yeah. Or... Um, or on music or math or, you know, some other things. They can, they can kind of specialize and do some things or have a little bit more control over what they want to be. 
Um, so, but, so parents can choose to go to that school. Yeah. So there's a choice option exercise. It's like a performing arts school, I think, yeah. here. So they yeah. can they can then focus on a certain... Yeah. Yep. Still do the basics, but still have, yes. but have a focus. Yeah. yeah. One of the themes... So the anyway, that, that's now sorry. 20%, sorry, uh, 20% in Utah. Oh. So now one out of every five children... So in any given neighborhood, like when I went to private school, I was one of the weird ones. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. But now, like when I when our kids went to private school, there was in a, in a neighborhood of thirty students, there was ten, ten of those students that were ten. doing something else. Yeah. So it was much more common. It was more normalized. Yeah. So now I don't know if we could get a full voucher, but if it was something that you know applied to fifty percent of the students in the state, I think you could get it, and the teachers unions couldn't push back because too many people now are exercising choice. Mm. And like that, they have these options that they can go to. And sorry, just to jump. Sorry, you go. Oh, just while we're talking about statistics, have you noticed an increase at all um, with homeschooling, like over the last? Two yes. Years yeah, from COVID, I can't remember what the numbers are, but I think it was, you know, nationally, it, for a while, it had hovered around five percent. Yeah. I think it's gone to ten. Wow. I was. I was speaking to yeah. you know because parents were looking yeah. online like, that's not education. I could do it better. Yes. And so, yeah, you've had a, a significant increase in, in homeschooling. Yes. Um, so. It happened with me as well because I, in the lockdowns, for about a three to four week period, I was home a lot, lot more than I normally yeah. am. And um, my wife was working as well on and off um, for her nursing roster. Um, so I was, took a big, big, bigger step in educating my, my children. Um, so I'm reading books to the baby and... The older one, the high school student, she can manage herself a lot better. Um, but my primary school student, uh, t- child, um, had a little bit of trouble with mathematics. So I went and bought the NAPLAN book and I said, you have to do your times tables every day, the full lot. So she uh, one times tables to 13 times tables and I wanted her to write it out every day. She actually, after the three months, and I bought a prize for her and I said, this is what you'll get after you do it. If you do it every day, this is what you will get. Um, she actually went back to school after the lockdown ahead of a lot of other children because she had a better understanding of times tables. And I didn't realise, I thought the teachers used to lie to us when times tables is the fundamentals of mathematics. You can't add, you can't subtract without it. So um, once she had a better understanding of that, um, she her maths grade actually went up this year. So we've seen her curve of maths go up. So she was like a D mm. and she's gone to a C and then she's almost a B, which is quite good. Um, so it was it was very interesting. And sorry, I know you have a question as well. But just on the topic of the vouchers, could you imagine the employment opportunities it would create in Utah if you had people having six thousand like a school? If you get a six thousand dollar voucher, that's a, that's an entire school fee. I pay about five thousand dollars per year for my kids to go to to school. Um, so you could have a whole school start up and have two or three special. Say if you had ten children. You could run a small school specialised in woodwork, in manufacturing, in to cover your basics and all that, but you could actually have these little focus schools. So these little pop-up schools could be done, just like the home daycares. You know, and we've got home daycare now, so that people have a... They, 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 they do a daycare centre at home. You could almost do a school at home. Yeah. And that would be enough money creating Yeah, jobs. I mean, one of the things that could be interesting... I mean, number one, I think we'll see a lot more innovation mm. um, with that, right, because people now can test out these different models uh, you know I think one of the pushbacks will be and I think one of the ways to address this is like you know one of the challenges that you'd have again you talk about the system that's built up is you've got all these schoolhouses mm-hmm. right 
And well, what are we going to do when we owe money on those? Well, I think one of the things they could do is say that small one, that small school, they may need a place to be, rent out the space. Rent out the workshop. So you, you become, I mean, in some ways, that they become a facilities management thing. Yeah. And, you know, they, the teachers could come in or whatever, and, and they could, you know, you still utilize the buildings that have debt on them. And, you know, you can't just walk away from that investment without creating massive financial hardship yeah. for taxpayers. Yeah. You can still use it. So I, I think there's still even some ways to be creative, even in how those buildings are used and, and may be used better. Um, for, for those that are doing something else. Okay. You say 6,000 is a lot. In D.C., I think the K through 12, the most recent number I saw, they were spending $25,000 per kid. Really? And they're some of the worst schools in the through country. Through private system? Public school. Public. That's a public, public school. school. And they're paying $25,000? $25,000. And it's, again, in terms of outcomes, D.C. public school system is one of the worst yeah, to your point, if I had 10 kids, $25,000, $250,000, but you're focusing <laughs> yeah, on you know, what I they mean, want. Where's that money going? You, yeah, yeah, well, so, mm. Wow. Sorry, Stephen. Well, one of the big themes at the Freedom Conference has been the left has captured a lot of our institutions. Yep. So we need mm-hmm. to start creating our own institutions. So when I think about when I was at school, if I wanted to learn something, I would go to the library, I'd get a book that was written in the 1970s because it was, you know, 10 or 20 years old, and I'd be trying to learn from that. And then we kind of got Encarta, which was like, wow, you know, this is a, a, a new resource for us. Today, kids have the internet. So if they wanted to go and learn something, like you mentioned your son is interested in cars, he could go to the internet and learn about cars on his own. Is there a way that we can incorporate that where we set up a system if kids did want to learn on their own and go to a platform somewhere and find that information, they're not just in the internet and could find yeah. whatever. You know, There's actually a structured uh, platform where they can actually go to learn and have like almost like tutoring sessions set up. Yeah, I don't know if you know, that, the, the Walden or... That, that approach again where it's project-based learning as opposed to um, subject-based learning and the subjects happen. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the dynamics. Like, yeah, just send out on the Internet, go learn what you want to learn. Mm. You could, first of all, there's a lot of garbage on the Internet. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. Of, and there's predators, right? I mean, it, oh, it's, yeah. it, I, I am sending them out into an environment that's not necessarily healthy in all respects. Um, so... Yeah, it, it, again, with the innovations, it would be interesting to see, if I unlock that innovation, how different schools, because we keep talking, they've talked about technology as a revolution in schools, but if you look at how technology is used in schools right now, it's very clunky. The outcomes and impact that it's had on student learning has really been mixed. You know, is it just a platform to get more Apple computers in kids' hands or yeah. Dell or mm. Hewlett-Packard or whoever's and doing it? all the it. time they use it just to keep the kids controlled. Yeah. You no, know, because yeah. otherwise they'd be... Again, it's a babysitting yeah. mechanism. Yeah. So what what could we in that environment when somebody really does say, hey, listen, how, how are we really going to turn this into a tool, a collaboration mechanism, a tool, whatever, you know, gamification game you know turning things learning into games yeah. different stuff that way yeah, you in, mentioned your son ways, so. uh, loves baseball so when you apply yeah my, base- my, yeah, my second son yeah, yeah when you apply baseball to mathematics he's he gets it yeah 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 i mean he's looking at the tables right I mean, it is you know but even i mean you can look across the board music is mathematical yeah mm. Mm. 
you know, there's even aspects, aspects of English and poetry that are mathematical. Okay. I haven't made that right? link, but I haven't made that link personally, but... Um, you know, so, um, yeah, so I think there's um, all sorts of things that could happen if, if we allow the market um, to do that. And, and then, then the government can maybe, I think there is still a role for government in terms of setting some of the rules, right, in terms of how that money should be spent, potentially. I mean, there's always going to be a tension there, but, um, and then... Um, you know, I think one of the one of the tools that they could do is, you know, evaluating who's being you know who's being successful in some of those regimes and, and being more think tank like in terms of hey, this seems to be working and or setting up prizes or doing different things that way as opposed they the way I talk to people about it is the government does have roads they're responsible for building roads and there's a proper role for government in terms of infrastructure and funding it. But they don't have to be on the ground rolling out the asphalt or the concrete. Mm -hmm. right? Let the construction company that's really the expert in that bid. You know, you set the standards here, you know, the safety standards and what it needs to look like and where it needs to go. But then you give the money to somebody else whose job it is. And, you know, same thing. You know, government, I think government has an interest. And I think as a people we have an interest in a well-educated citizenry. There's, mm, yep. there's a critical importance to that. Yes. But government can fund it, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be the purveyor, right? They do not have to be the one delivering that service, although they may be the funding mechanism that enables it. So, Thanks for pointing out the, the language and mathematical link. It's something that I haven't... <laughs> I, haven't inter- I, I didn't, didn't make that link. So but, um, something I will have a little bit of a research, you know, just it's something that's interesting. Yeah, well, when you talk about poetry has rhythm, right? Why is that rhythm? Because there are, whether it's the amount of syllables or, yeah. is it pentameter? Uh, what's the, is like five, right? Penti is, is right. Yeah. It could, yeah. Okay. No, okay. No, so I want to have a. I, I want to um, yeah, research that. It's very, very cool. I, I don't know how much in terms of like writing a novel there is in terms no. of math, other than chapters and pages, right? You know. Yeah. And, but the link. But 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 in terms of poetry, there mm. is a level. Excellent. Of, I always want to research the link, and that's not something else I could tell my daughter why mathematics is important. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's like, I'm never going to use math. Like you're a dancer. <laughs> oh well. Like, three three. You are using math all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's spe- I mean, it's actually high level spatial dynamics yes. right in terms of okay if I want this dancer who's on this edge to end up on that side how many steps do they need to take mm-hmm. how many beats in the music yeah. does it need to require what you're, you're doing math problems without realizing, realizing that you're it. doing math problems mm-hmm. in choreography even timing as well so you have yep. four four times yep. three four times yep. seven five times mm-hmm. all these six eight, eight. oh yeah, my goodness it's, it's all fractions it's full on. that's, that's yeah. why I can't play fractions. guitar <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So when you when you jump when you when you're at the airport and you're about to jump on a plane to go to the other side of the world, yeah. what are you hoping to achieve the most from from coming here to the Friedman Conference? Um, yeah, I, I think on on my end, obviously with the summit early on uh, in the week, uh, I think we were really trying to you know coming out of COVID have a real frank discussion around where are we in in the moment in time and. Where are our strengths? Where are our weaknesses? And, and as we think about it as a movement, how are we going to tackle the next challenges that we see on the horizon in an effective and impactful way? Um, 
you know, there is a little bit of, of every moment in time, there's, they call, I think it's the Peter principle, right? What got you here won't get you there. Mm. And so as a movement, you know, while I love Ronald Reagan and, you know, he's one of my heroes, uh, in the U.S., the tendency is to kind of almost worship Reagan. I'm like, we don't need another Reagan. Mm-hmm. We need somebody else. And maybe there's some similar qualities, but what we're dealing with right now is different than what yeah. Reagan was dealing with. He was good time. for the time. I, yeah. I need I need the person in the moment of time. So part of that was that. I think the second one, you know, at least from my talk today, is I, I think there are ways that we can be much more successful in, in securing wins for freedom um, if we'll be more intentional about not just being right, um, but thinking about ways in which we can leverage what we know in this case about diffusion and innovation and apply that to our ideas so that we can be more sophisticated in how we go about trying to, to gain wins for freedom. I think I do think we've left far too many wins on the table mm. because we thought it was enough to be right um, or we thought you know people will want human flourishing and freedom. And I think in general they do, but the children of Israel in the Bible left Egypt and they wanted to go back. Or after having the judges for a period of time, they wanted a king. Some right? people so, like to be told. So to do. there is still in, in the human psyche there there is a, a a battle that we have to win with every generation of why freedom matters and what does that look like given the mm-hmm. complexities of our generation and the threats as well as strengths. Like the internet's a threat, but it's also a strength. Mm-hmm. Given those dynamics, how can we more successfully fight for freedom? What's your number one thing to take away from this weekend to to go back home? You know, I mean, part of it, like last night um, with Ted, with Marion, like, I I guess just a reminder that there really is a yearning in the human soul Mm. to, to be free. And just for people that might not know who they are, Ted... Was the, was the fellow from Hong Kong? Hong Kong, yeah, the, the yep. uh, political Escaped asylum. You know, sought political asylum here and had to leave home. Yeah. Uh, and Marion is a member of the Ukrainian. He's a member mm. of parliament in Ukraine yes. and and fighting back on the Russian insert the Russian incursion um, and uh, military action there. So, uh, I think for me, um, you know, I'm looking around the room with the folks in the room. I, I don't get the sense that. People are satisfied, you know. As I'm having conversations, uh, people want to win, mm-hmm. and, and so um, I think and, people and I, are like for myself. I'm scared, so mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a fight or, yeah. or flight type. And, and, and to a certain extent, sometimes that's healthy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is at times it is easy to I won't say get lackadaisical, but you know, maybe not work quite as hard. It's that they talk a little bit about it's the you know, the Super Bowl syndrome. Or you wait for someone else to do it. Or, yeah. You know. Or the Super Bowl syndrome. So somebody, an athlete, they win the Super Bowl, and the next year they're not as good. Yeah. Mm. Right? I, I achieved that, right? So there is this tendency, if things are really good and we've had some major wins and successes, I maybe don't work as hard. I maybe don't work out as hard. I maybe don't watch as much film as maybe I should. And, and, and I think as a movement... You know, broadly, I think COVID was a real wake-up call. Oh, yeah. yes. That mm-hmm. freedom in some of these places that we thought we'd won the debate, we have to go win it again. Yeah. Yeah. And I so from my perspective, yeah. I think there, there's not a defeatism, that there's a healthy sense of looking in the mirror, and, and there's 
kind of a reawakening of the uh, let's go fight. And I think that's healthy. I think that's good. We've maybe needed a galvanizing moment like that. Oh, yes. mm. That could have been worse. Yeah. Um, there were still lots of ugly portions, but could have been worse. Could have been a world war uh, or it something. It could have been a world war. Mm. Um, civil, civil war. It could have been a civil war. Yeah, whatever it might be. Yeah, mm. um, yeah in, in past generations, that's what it would have been, mm. right? So is COVID our wake-up call? And I think for a lot of people it was. And, and I think that's a good thing for, for the freedom movement. And I think... Um, in the last federal election, even though the Freedom Parties did increase their percentage overall, obviously no one really got seated or yeah. to make the difference. Um, so the good thing that can come out of this, and I guess it's a positive based on a negative, is that now people are going to feel the pinch just that little bit, and we might not feel the full brunt of the pinch, but then people will wake up to, and realise, well, wait a second, I did want something different, and we thought we did something different, but it wasn't the right different if, yeah. You know, I know that's a lot of differences, but, well, you know, that's I right. I feel like in, you'd know in the United States, everyone's feeling the pinch now under the Biden administration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the challenge was for years, even going back to the 2008 crisis, like you can't spend money like this yeah. and not have inflation. And the challenge was coming out of that, we didn't really see it. Mm. And so, well, oh, okay, well, maybe. And I think there's some reasons for that in terms of how the Federal Reserve actually mm-hmm was spending, but also paying off some of the interest. So there were some mitigating factors where maybe it wasn't as bad and, you know, and the economy kind of came back. But now, you know, those of us that were saying for lots of years, if you spend like this and you have massive deficit spending things, there are repercussions when government takes action. And, and then the heavy hand of the government, right? Like under the guise of keeping you healthy, Mm What were they willing to do? And, and so I think they're both economically as well as kind of the power of the state. I think there were some healthy wake-up calls where there were just many, again, I would say my generation, while I appreciate it, I don't, I don't think many had seen it. I lived in Russia for two years in the early 90s, so I saw the residual effects of what communism did to destroy family relationships, confidence. It's, I mean, there was no civil society mm-hmm. in Russia. It was the government, and that was it. And so I really saw the vacuum living there of what that was. And, I mean, it was the wild, wild west, at least yeah. under Yeltsin. I mean, it was much freer than under Putin because, I mean, Yeltsin was drunk half the time. So <laughs> he didn't really care what was going on. But, um, yeah, so I, I think, again, just more reasons from my perspective to be optimistic that, you know, we've, we've kind of been slapped around a little bit. Um, and... Yes, we have suffered some losses when it comes to our freedoms. But as human creatures, right, unless sometimes we need that moment of pain to say, okay, I didn't like that. Um, maybe I'm. Maybe we'll try something else. So I think yeah. coming out of this, I think there is a real window of opportunity. If we'll seize it. Mm. I said if we'll, you know, like I said, do some of the things I said in there. We'll change what we, you know, redefine the words and redefine what what success looks like in, in a range of these areas um, and not let the left do that. Because if they're, if they're able to define success and own the lexicon, then then, then we'll, we'll keep losing. But this is maybe what conservative people needed. It, it's a wake-up yeah. call to band together, just like um, the Friedman Conference. Yeah. We're all here because we are conservative, um, centre-right, or yeah. you know, there's varying scales of that. And some people say up and down, and there's yeah. a few different things. But 
you know, we're all here for basically the same reason. And it just goes, it gives us strength that we can know that I can go back to my community and go, well, I know that there's two or three hundred people who are feeling the same way. We've got organisations like Atlas that are Yeah, there. well, and maybe, it's, you know, as we go back, I guess the hope that I have is that people go back and say, you know, okay, there's two or three hundred people. How do, how do we make that, you know, how do we double that next yes. year? And then how do we double that the year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, that we're not just happy with how many people are in the room. Like, it's good, it's good to be back, and it's good to be amongst friends. But I want more friends in the room. Yes. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. So one final question. Yep. Uh, should it be Trump or DeSantis or someone else? Uh, if I had my pick, I'd say someone else. Yeah? Yeah. Um, definitely not Trump. Um, Why not Trump? Um, I, I think there's I think there's a few reasons. I think number one, um, from a philosophical standpoint, there is no root there. Um, I, I think we were fortunate under the previous administration there were enough people that he brought on board with him, mm. and the Federalist Society, for example, on the on the judges front, mm. you know that he he listened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's, he was actually very mad because many of the judges that he put in were the ones that turned down his you know, election fraud request because the rule of law said, listen, you don't have a case. Yeah. And he, I think he thought he was appointing people that would do his bidding as judges. Mm-hmm. So there is, from my perspective, there's an authoritarian bent in Trump that I think is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his inability to craft a positive forward message it's all been about you know if you look at his activity recently and really since he lost the election it's about airing grievances Mm -hmm. to me that is not a message that wins elections if i'm about winning elections and moving forward Mm -hmm. and we saw he lost in georgia after right the the two senators that lost it's been a real mixed bag in terms of the candidates um so i i I just you know, maybe part of it's like I don't want another 80-year-old as president. Yeah. Um, but you don't like DeSantis either. Um, DeSantis is better. I think DeSantis has better policy chaps, or chops in terms of um, kind of where he is. But even if you – on some things he's been really good, but then there's been other stuff that he's done in, in Florida that's like, man, I don't want – if he does that as president, we're going to lose a lot of freedom. Oh, okay. You know, so talking a little bit about this, you know – we're going to use the federal government to punish companies. Mm. And while there are Republicans going, yeah, let's do it. It's great when our guy's in office, mm. but when they're not in office, I don't want Biden having that kind of power to ruin the lives of businesses. Yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. So there's still this temptation. So if I were to say a third person that I would look at that, you know, and for me, maybe it's just, you know, my my dream that, you know, I, I think there is a Mar- Margaret Thatcher in the U.S. in the wings, and to me it's Nikki Haley. So I think if, if, if I were to look at that first, I think she did a, a tremendous job as a governor in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I think she was really effective um, and showed some real backbone, even to Trump, right? It's like, listen, um, as the ambassador to the U.N., so I think she's got some good fo- foreign policy understanding um, and, uh, you know, Stood up to the unions in South Carolina. Was very good economically. Much more open. I would say much more free market Republican than where I feel like. I mean, again, DeSantis was good on COVID, mm. but on some of these other things, like wielding the power of the state to just take it out on your it's enemies. Very dangerous. To me, that is just you start doing that, and, and 
man, that is a bad place for us to be. So, Because yeah. um, you don't know who's coming next. Exactly. A good leader doesn't necessarily mean another good leader will take over. Yeah. If you give them the power, yeah. then they could use it for the, for the bad. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, Trump came in and, and he wielded the executive authority, right? I mean, here's all this stuff. And, and what did Biden do the first day he was in office? Mm. Pulled out the executive power pen and overturned mm. a bunch of the stuff that Trump did. And, mm. and, and so there needs to be, I don't know, I mean, DeSantis is a former member of the legislature, right? So I think he understands the legislative process. Um, I'm not sure if DeSantis, I I guess part of it for me is I don't want another angry politician. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think our principles are principles of hope. I would say happiness. Mm -hmm. I would say of joy. And and I think that is the one aspect of Reagan that I think if we could find somebody similar is, and Obama did a great job of this. I mean, to his credit, he was very aspirational. Mm -hmm. And and I think in our moment right now, um, we need we need less anger and and more more healing. Yeah, more 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 aspirational dialogue as opposed to divisive, angry. I'm going to stick it to you. So uh, how can people follow you? Or, or, you know? <laughs> so I mean, yeah, maybe the best way, uh, you know, from a Twitter standpoint, it's just my name. It's at Lyle, L-Y-A-L-L, swim, mm-hmm. S-W-I-M. It's amazing how the f- my last name gets misspelled as much as my first name, which you wouldn't think would be possible. <laughs> swim is so easy. Yeah. But, maybe the first but, name throws yeah, it off. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's too easy. Swim's not a real yeah. 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 Yeah.